Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. The Freedom of Information Act is one of the primary tools that we as citizens have to hold our governments accountable. This week, we meet Jesse Higgins, the newest reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow, and talk about why Albemarle County says it no longer needs to fulfill Freedom of Information Act requests in a timely manner. Plus, we talk to pipeline activists from Buckingham about the cancellation of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and environmental racism. The information we were receiving is so sketchy, secretive type, and the reports we were getting that Dominion could not be trusted. Environmental justice for people of color should actually be called environmental injustice. And I say that because we know that the communities with people of color are often chosen for these toxic waste facilities. So y'all have probably heard by now that Charlottesville Tomorrow has a new reporter on the team. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Jesse. Um, I come here uh, by way of Indiana. I've lived in the Midwest for seven or eight years, but I'm not technically a Midwesterner. I actually was born and raised in Oregon near Portland, so I've just been slowly making my way east. What are some of your reporting specialties or your favorite past stories that you've written? My favorite time as a journalist, I I spent five years as an investigative journalist at a uh, mid-sized metro newspaper. Back when that was a thing, that was probably the highlight of my career so far. And, you know, as an investigative journalist, your themes are just endless. And then I transitioned into national press. I was a correspondent stringer for United Press International covering the Midwestern region, and that was wildly different. So you recently wrote an article about a change in how Albemarle County is responding to Freedom of Information Act requests, which are often called FOIAs. What is the Freedom of Information Act? The Freedom of Information Act, um, there are two. One is uh, the federal Freedom of Information Act, and that was passed, I believe, in 1967. And it's an act that guarantees access to government operations and, and government actions. So before that, there was a problem in that you know, our, our government is meant to be open and accessible, but there was no real definition for what that meant. So this act did as best it could to define what it meant to be open and accessible. And it it basically means, it does multiple things, but the part that we're talking about is access to public meetings. So you basically, you can't have government agency convene and have government business without being open and accessible and publicized. The other part of it is access to public documents. So anything that a government creates, any plan, any correspondence, any, now we're in a modern age, so recordings, videos, all of those are presumed to be public records. And anyone who is a a citizen can request and 
be shown given those public records. Now, there are lots of exceptions, but in general, that's, that's the idea. Like, if you have a public record, so, like, meeting minute, anything that the government makes is presumed to be something that you and I can ask for and review. And the idea behind that is it enables us to, one, see our, how our government's working, and two, hold them accountable. And it's, it's just fundamental to a democracy. That's the federal version. A few years later, the states all adopted their own versions, and they're very similar. What has changed in how Albemarle County responds to these requests in the past couple weeks? So when, when COVID struck, states and localities all over the country got together and passed emergency ordinances to basically define how they would function during this pandemic. Um, and that's something that you know, our statutes allowed them to do, and they had to move very quickly to do it. So what Albemarle County did is they, um, quote, extended indefinitely the deadline to respond to FOIA requests. So they basically said, you know, we are no longer obligated to fill this request within any given timeline, which, you know, if you follow that to the next logical step means we're no longer obligated to respond to these requests. So in Virginia, the law is that a governing agency has five working days to respond to a FOIA request. And um, and then it gets really complicated. There are lots of exceptions. So is this indefinite extension legal? So there are dueling laws. According to the FOIA statute, it's extremely clear that you that no locality can change FOIA. So that would seem to say no. And I'll actually read what it says because it's it's really straightforward. Any ordinance adopted by a local governing body that conflicts with the provisions of this chapter shall be void. So that that's very clear. However, the county government used um, a different state law with which to enact their ordinance. And that law states, notwithstanding any contrary provision of law, general or special, any locality may, by ordinance, provide a method to assure continuity of its government in the event of an enemy attack or other disaster. Such ordinance shall be limited in its effect to a period not extending six months after any such attack or disaster and shall provide for a method for the resumption of normal government authority at the end of the six-month period. I emailed with the uh, state FOIA council about this, and they described that this, this situation is a conflict of laws. It says, you know, continuity of government. How is not responding to FOIA requests contributing to the continuity of government under this disaster? So the, the county's response is that the law that I just mentioned gives them the authority to do this because we are in the middle of a pandemic and it may be unsafe or illegal for employees, for county employees to enter buildings, that they wanted to make sure that they weren't violating the law by not filling FOIA requests where they couldn't get to them. Now, what's interesting about that is the vast majority of documents or other public records that you would be requesting these days are all electronic. So it's actually 
pretty rare in my experience for a FOIA request to result in an agency actually like digging through old files and boxes. Um, it does happen, but it is rare. But but that is their explanation, and they also add that they are as often as possible filling FOIA requests within the deadline anyway, although they don't have to. What are the repercussions of this decision? There's several possible repercussions. One is, to me, it sets a a disturbing precedent that FOIA laws can be so easily sidestepped uh, just because we are in a disaster, because disasters can and do happen frequently. And I do not believe that we should, as a people, lose our right to monitor and understand what our government is doing while it's functioning, which it is right now, because of a disaster. The other repercussions are all kind of related to that, in that just because Albemarle County is fulfilling FOIA right now does not mean it has to and does not mean it will. So it's it's good. It's very good that they're making every effort to meet FOIA deadlines, despite the fact that they, they've declared that they don't have to. But it troubles me that at any point a member of the public or a member of media might hit a wall and may not be granted access to, to their government in the way that our country was designed. So we've been talking a lot about the criminal justice system. Could you tell us about Mr. Roger Fentress? So Roger is a very recently freed man. He was convicted of murdering a man in Richmond named Thomas Foley, who had gone to an apartment building to buy crack cocaine with a friend. And the case hinged on a the, the eyewitness testimony of that friend who testified that she had seen Roger come to the car and that Thomas Foley had followed Roger back to the apartment building where uh, Thomas Foley was shot and killed. And Roger maintained his innocence for many years. He he was 15 at the time he was arrested. He was waiting in line to register for school with his mother. And he says he was not the type of teenager to be out at night. So when the police asked him what he was doing, there wasn't anything really special about that night. He was, he was home. He didn't really remember exactly what went on that night. He, it was 3 a.m. He was home asleep, is what he said. So he spent many, many years in prison until, by some very random chance, he met another man who had been convicted of a different murder in prison, uh, D'Anthony Duan. And D'Anthony was talking about crimes that he committed, and he was telling a story about a man that he had shot in front of a Richmond apartment building after the man had come to buy crack cocaine with a female friend. And the way he talked about that shooting, Roger recognized it as the crime that he had been convicted for. And he said that he really agonized over how to bring this up to D'Anthony because, you know, prison is a really rough world. 
And if he did it wrong, he he could end up in a really bad situation, labeled a snitch, and, and that's just not something that you want. But he, he found the courage, and he approached DeAnthony and said, you know, the, the crime that you were talking about, this is what I was convicted for. And they determined that it actually was the same crime. And DeAnthony responded in the most positive way possible, said he was willing to do whatever it took to help get Roger free, to help get Roger out of the situation. So he, he confessed... And he signed an affidavit confessing to the murder. And Roger then took that affidavit and on his own, without counsel, filed what's called a habeas corpus petition to a judge, which is a way for someone who is imprisoned to claim that they are wrongfully imprisoned and that their imprisonment is violating their constitutional rights and that they should be released. And the judge in that case denied the request um, on the basis that DeAnthony Duan was not a credible witness. He had been convicted of a felony, which made him uncredible. And he and Fentress had met each other in prison, which was also something that made him uncredible. So with that petition denied, uh, Roger had very few options. But he, he started just writing to anyone he could think of to get help with his case, um, newspapers, TV stations, and also the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia. And the, the Innocence Project reviewed his case and agreed to take it, and they knew that because this habeas corpus had been denied, Roger's only option was to receive a pardon from the governor. So they filed this pardon petition in 2017, and it just sat there. And finally, at the end of June, the Innocence Projects decided to take one last stab at getting him freed. So with this petition request sitting on the governor's desk, they launched a really aggressive social media campaign and um, had like put out a press release, had stories written, and gathered thousands of signatures on change.org to petition the governor to free Roger. And a week into this campaign, uh, he did just that. Are stories like Mr. Fentress's common? His attorneys at the Innocent Pro- Innocence Projects do say that there are, they believe, many innocent people convicted of crimes in the United States. And one of the reasons for that is our justice system is so overburdened that prosecutors really push for people to take plea deals, for suspects to take plea deals, rather than risk going to trial and receiving long sentences, which is exactly what happened in Roger's case. He was offered a plea deal of five years, which at 15, he flat refused because he said he was innocent and he wasn't going to plead guilty to something that he didn't do. He had really no thought that he would be convicted of something he, he didn't do. So he rejected this plea deal, which the attorneys at the Innocence Project say is actually very uncommon. People often are so afraid of the trial that they will plead guilty, take a shorter sentence, and just take the hit, basically. So in that sense, they say that there are a a large number of innocent people, either with convictions or serving time. 
Is there anything else you want to add on this story? I, I will just uh, say that, you know, Roger, he's now living in Richmond with his brother, and he is so eager to restart his life. So he he is starting his life at 40, really far behind. And the students at the UVA Law School organized a GoFundMe for him to you know, get him started, to help him. So that, uh, that GoFundMe page is linked to the, the story that we published. I will also say that um, Roger is not fully pardoned. He received a conditional pardon, which um, got him released from prison, but he's still a felon. Uh, he's still a convicted murderer, and he is on probation for three years. Jesse Higgins is the lead reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. Our assistant producer, Justine Baird, brings you the next segment. In our last segment, I sit down with Chad Oba and Ruby and John Laurie to talk about the cancellation of Dominion Energy's Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Chad is the media coordinator for Friends of Buckingham, a group that has protested against the pipeline since its original proposal. Ruby and John Laurie are also members of Friends of Buckingham and sit on the group's council. All three of them are also residents of Union Hill, the community that was chosen as the location for the pipeline's compressor station prior to its cancellation. We first learned about the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was one day when this little lady came to our front door and asked if we were aware that Dominion wanted to have natural grass transported through a 42-inch pipeline. So being a native Californian, uh, my family and I have always used natural gas in our homes. Of course, she immediately replied what was involved with frack gas and explained about natural gas going through our community. Of course, at that time, I had no idea or clue what the fracked gas meant. So we listened. I was the first person to hear in this, in this neighborhood. I was the town crier, so to speak. And, and that's when I went house to house and when and I met Ruby and John. And my feelings were very deep concern because somebody had called me from Nelson County because Nelson County got a little more involved with this before we did and said, you know, I think that compressor station may be somewhere around you, Chad, and you may want to go to this meeting and find out more about it. How specifically was the pipeline going to impact Union Hill? Well, first of all, the air quality, um, the, you know, compressor stations have many, many emissions, um, nitrous oxide, particulate matter. They're, they're full of deadly emissions and people who live near them often get sick. That, that was our first concern. But, you know, water was also a concern. When you're digging and trenching, water gets diverted in different directions. The people here, most people here have pretty shallow wells. Also, our streams, 
um, there's a wetland area behind where they, the compressor station land. It was just desecration of a very historical area. I'm going to pass that to John. The air, as you stated, the poison emissions along with the uh, dust and the water, our underground water stream, we depend on that. And we also have an orchard, garden, and ecosystem we have here, and the noise from the compressor station, proposed compressor station. And above all that, the information we were receiving is so sketchy, secretive type. Nothing was straightforward coming to us. And reports we were getting that Dominion could not be trusted. That made it even more difficult. We didn't have much to go on. With the size of this proposed compressor station and this community at large, there wouldn't have been much left of us here. We were like guinea pigs sitting in this community. What activist efforts did Friends of Buckingham organize? You know, meetings, monthly meetings always, education with PowerPoints. Uh, we participated in all of the regulatory hearings, the water board, the air board for the air permit, the local hearings for the special use permit to be able to use the land they wanted to put the compressor station on. You know, there were some really sweet events. It was one called Walk the Line. Um, they just had a little reunion celebration this week, and that's why I'm thinking of it, where people actually walked the whole line, and then it culminated at Union Hill Church with a big celebration for them. We did an amazing uh, walk, Stand for Union Hill and Environmental Racism, which was across the Robert E. Lee Bridge, where the Martin Luther King Poor People Campaign had marched um, back in the 60s. We did that just about at the same time as they did that. That was really well attended. There were like over a thousand people. Let's see, we had an, a, an amazing event here in Buckingham where Reverend William Barber and uh, Vice President Al Gore came. That was the biggest event Buckingham ever had. When... Uh... Reverend uh, Barber and uh, former pro, uh, Vice President Albor came. They came to our local church, which they took a tour of the community area. That was very uplifting. And they spoke, both spoke at the church as well, the middle school. That was uplifting to the community as well as to Buckingham at large. And knowingly, for those who didn't know, but a Reverend uh, Barber, he will speak the truth. And at that time, we need the truth to be spoken. The people need to know the truth. Too many lives have been spread. That was a big boost for us. Dominion was called out. As um, was mentioned, we attended many meetings. We attended many demonstrations. Uh, we had a Virginia Human Rights Tribunal and we did the door-to-door -door survey. We wrote letters to our senators, our congressmen. As you kind of mentioned, Dominion and these big federal role players were clearly very, very big organizations that you guys had to organize against. So what did it feel like fighting against Dominion and against other organizations that really wanted to build this pipeline? This was back few years back, we had a, a, one of our board of supervisors meet. Our pastor spoke to the board, and he reminded them of a scripture of David going against Goliath. 
a slingshot in full stone. He was letting them know about the power of the Holy Spirit against whatever the world has to offer. There's no match against the Holy Spirit. At the same time, regardless, and this is what we were basing us on because we knew that this was an unjust project and it was devastation to the uh, environment. And we attended an event there in Richmond and we found out that not only Union Hill community, this throughout most of the southern areas, there was so much devastation going on with corporate America. And to go up against these corporate giants, against trying to help correct some of the wrongness, and we do it in the name of Jesus, it's no problem. But to go against the giants in your own name, it's no match. I'm not a person to back down. When there's something to fight for, and you know you are on the right side of it, because I never doubted that we weren't on the right side of this. Like John said, when you're coming in and you're hurting, you're hurting so much. I mean, everything from the water, the air, the environment, the, the animals, the people, the people, people who are more vulnerable than a lot of people and who've worked so hard to have what they have. It's wrong. And we knew it was wrong. So, you know, they're big, but I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this as far as it goes. That was why we won. We were not going to give up. We were not. We knew. We knew we had, we were on the right side of this. When you guys found out that the pipeline was canceled, how did that feel? Uh, this is what we prayed for. This is what we worked for with all the effort that went forth into it. Believe it or not, I still did not believe it when I was told that they had canceled. And I'm still slowly coming around to believing that this monstrosity and the people involved has given up. But I'm thankful to God. When I first heard about it, um, I was at the grocery store just getting out of my car and my cell phone rang. And it was one of the, um, my fellow activists who was at the time was a student at UVA. And she said, have you heard the news? And I said, what news? She said that the project had been canceled. I said, no, I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was truly elated. I was felt so good that they had given up. But I always had my faith and trust in God, and I knew that he was going to take care of us. I'd like to highlight something here uh, Ruby made me think of when she said, I knew I had faith in God, and I knew that we would prevail. I can't remember how you said it, Ruby, but I think mm -hmm. that's important to note because there were times when I would get really in despair about this. You know, we've had to deal with so many lies, the corruption, you know, uh, that it was it was hard to keep for me to keep faith at all all times, but there was always someone else. But I think there has to be moments for that for every human being where you you know your faith is tested. You're you know you, you've worked so hard and then somebody just does something really awful, and you know and manipulates the facts, which they did so much. But I was I was sitting on my porch swing and I almost fell off of it. Truly, really, started screaming. My husband, he's a sculptor. He was working with some stone outside, and he said, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And he came running over, and I said, 
I, I don't know if it's true. I can't, I, I can hardly believe it. And you know, it is, it, it's, it, I'm feeling like John, I'm just sort of, it's just starting to soak in. It's taken me a while. And the other day I actually was talking to Ruby and I, and I said, you know, I, I can sort of feel it, the stress falling off of me, but it's hard to believe, you know, it, it's like we've been in this stagnant situation for so long, you know, where it's like, what is our future going to be? What's the next hurdle we're going to have to jump through? Um, you know, and, and suddenly the air cleared. With this decision and generally, what does environmental justice mean to you guys? Okay, environmental justice. Environmental justice for people of color should actually be called environmental injustice. And I say that because we know that the communities with people of color are often chosen for these toxic waste facilities. However, I believe when the fourth district court ruled in our favor, they had many questions for the uh, Dominion lawyers who were not able to answer. And I finally felt that someone is finally listening. We now have environmental justice. Climate the climate crisis is so connected with, with the justice issues because, as Ruby said, you know, these kinds of toxic facilities are, are very often located in, in communities of color. So any kind of climate action that we take is, is actually uh, action for, for justice. And they have to include everyone. They have to, especially the most vulnerable. I mean, if NEPA has to be enforced, if NEPA had been followed to begin with, in our case, this would not have been considered. This compressor station would not have been considered for Union Hill. Mm -hmm. um, when I, I didn't know about NEPA years ago. I, you know, when I started doing my research, I looked at it and I said, hey, that's it. That's it. They're not supposed here. You know, I've lived here 36 years. I know who lives here. I know these are modest homes. I know that it's, you know, 84%. I didn't know it was 84%, but I knew it was majority black, low income. I'm low income, you know, and I thought, well, that's it. And that was one of the first things I actually said in a strategy meeting that included lawyers. And I was told at that time by somebody there, I won't mention their name, that it didn't have any teeth. Well, I think we need to give it some teeth. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers are Justine Baird and Sarah Howarth. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs>